Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Really a privilege to be with you guys. I'm going to ask you a question, an honest question. Uh, have you? Are, how many people here are either in or have been in a weed out course? Okay. What was that course, if you don't mind saying? Chemistry. Was it organic chemistry or just chemistry? Either. <laughs> Probably doesn't matter, does it? It's chemistry. All right. Anybody else? How many of you thought you were taking an intro course and it turned out to be really hard? All right, and then and then dropped it. Anybody? Yeah, that's what I did. Um, there are weed out courses in every field. I think a lot of times the intro classes that are perceived to be in- easy, you've got like you know a sociology professor who's going to prove that sociology is not for wimps, um, and or whatever it might be. But there's in, there's there there are weed out courses. I think in every field of life. I mean, if you want to become a Navy SEAL, you have to go through Hell Week. I'll tell you about my Hell Week. And as a Navy SEAL, I'm not a Navy SEAL. Um, they, if you want to start a new business, just the paperwork can be a weed out for people because it's extremely hard, I guess, to get that started. They, if you, uh, any sport, usually they'll have two-a-days up front. Those can weed out people. But a weed out course filters out those people who are not so committed um, and, uh, and it kind of tests to see, are you really in this? So let me ask you this. Is there a weed out course in the Christian faith? I would say yes, there is. It's called Suffering 101. Uh, Jesus actually says in the parable of the sower, he talks about this farmer who's spreading seed, and he sp- spreads it liberally, and it lands on different types of soils, representing different types of hearts. And he says in chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, as for the seed that was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So they're enthusiastic, excited, and yet they have no root, and when he endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution or suffering arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. It's not what I signed up for. I'm following Christ to make my life better, not like this. Suffering is something that's universal, but it can either, it, it, it can ruin you or it can make you. But uh, last time I spoke, it was in September, I happened to speak on Saul and his rise to, the, to power, and I think the title was Cautions When Starting Off Well, because Saul was, like, he had all the ingredients to, to, to be a great king, and all of a sudden he gets the surprise announcement, you've been anointed king, and he gets this red carpet rolled out in front of him, and by the end of his, you know, rise you know, to, to the throne, he looks awesome, and he ends up being a total disaster. David, I just coincidentally, I got the other side of this, this mirror image of this picture of Saul because I'm spe- talking about David now in a time where he's been anointed king, but he does not get a red carpet to the throne, but instead spends 10 years on the run. And I'm actually covering only seven chapters today. Um, I'm going to put this up on the screen. This is Israel, and I, this is like a Google Earth shot of Israel. If you put 
Fort Worth and Dallas on there. That's about the distance that Fort Worth and Dallas represent in Israel. So this is what David's time looks like in the chapters we're looking at. So he starts off going to a city called Nob, which is like two or three miles from where we left off. And he, he flees eventually to Gath, and then he goes to the other side over to Mizpah. And I left out a bunch of stuff, but by the time we end, he's going to be in Ziklag, which is 50 to 60 miles away from where he would reign as king, meaning he's been anointed, and 10 years later, he's 60 miles away and in, in enemy territory. He is not moving closer to his goal and suffering a lot along the way. And, and what I really want to do is, you, if you take Saul and David next to each other, Saul had everything but God. But by the end of this, David has nothing but God. And God is up to something, but what? What is he doing? What is he, what is he doing for us when we are in the desert, when we're in the wilderness? What lesson does he want us to learn? What lessons and how do we apply that? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm not going to read the whole passage, and that would be our whole time, honestly. But I want to summarize the passage Lift, you know, highlight this one lesson, but then apply it to our lives. Uh, hopefully, you can do that all in just under two hours. Um, so, the background. I, I don't know if it needs to be said, but where we left off, David has found out he is his, he's got a hit on his life. Saul is, he wants David dead. And the reason being, David being obedient to God has found out he's been anointed king. Saul, however, has all the power. He knows that God has rejected him, and effectively his time is short, but he still has the power, and he knows David is the threat. He knows that David is the guy who's going to be the next king, so Saul wants him dead. And when David finds this out, he has no time to pack his bags. He immediately leaves Ramah and goes to, um, to, to Nob, and that's where we pick up. So he's got some men with him, and what happens, I'm going to summarize the first part, David goes to Nob, and he meets a man named Ahimelech, who's a priest, and he tells the priest, we are on a secret, covert, urgent mission sent by Saul. That's why we don't have anything with us. Can you feed us? Can you give us weapons? And normally, the, the, there's holy bread in the temple, and Ahimelech agrees to give him the holy bread, and uh, a whole sermon can be preached on that. But then David asks for a weapon, and he says, do you have any weapons? And he says, the only weapon I have here is the sword of Goliath, whom you killed. And David says, there's none like it. I'll take it. So David leaves with Goliath's sword. And um, just notice one verse here. Verse 7, chapter 21, says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dobag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So this is a haunting verse, just kind of embedded in there. And, and if I were to summarize it, my paraphrase would be, and there was a hidden camera in the room. There was a snitch in their midst. There was a guy there who, this is going to come back and haunt him. But let's look at verse 10. David flees from Nob to Gath. Gath is about 20 files, uh, 25 miles away to the west. It's the chief city of the Philistines. And guess who's from Gath? Goliath. Goliath was a famous rock star of a, of a warrior from Gath, and David's rationale is thinking, well, Saul wants to kill me. Where's the last place Saul would look? In, in the capital city of our enemies. And David is going there. This is not entirely rational. He's famous for killing Goliath, and guess what he has with him? 
Goliath's massive sword, okay? So I don't know what he's thinking, but this would be like the town fugitive hiding out in the sheriff's living room. It just doesn't really make sense. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish, Achish was the king of Gath, the servants said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was as much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So David's not doing so well at this point. The king of Israel went from boldly standing up to a giant to now acting like Kanye West in the presence of the king. <laughs> he was acting crazy. Um, and, um, you know, the thing that's ironic is it worked. I mean, he, they, they kind of said, we don't, we don't have room for another crazy guy here. So chapter 22, verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Adullam means refuge, and it's in this no man's land between Philistia and, and, and Israel. And it's, in the, it's there that his brothers and his, his family joins him, along with about 400 other men. So his, his, the people following him grew to about a total of 600 people. But what we learn is, if I were to summarize who followed him, it was the outcasts and the losers. I mean, the people who were in debt, who were on the run, they were fugitives. They were not the people that you would pick for your, for your team. And they're following him, and they, the rest of chapter 22, Saul finds out that David was in Nob, you know, with these priests. Saul goes down and confronts Ahimelech and says, what, what did you do? And he says, well, I was just helping David. He's, he was on your mission. Saul takes this personally, like there was, was not uh, a miscommunication or, or a well-intentioned mistake. He has Doag kill all 85 of the priests and every man, woman, and child, ox, and donkey in that city. It's like, well done, Saul. Your good overreaction. Um, Saul is mad. He's, he's going crazy here, and this cost this town everybody's life. And the news, one guy escapes, tells David what happened. Look at chapter uh, 22, verse 22. David says, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. So just keep these things in mind. I'm going somewhere with what I'm highlighting. Chapter 23, David learns that the Philistines are robbing the threshing floors in Kaliah. That's about three miles south of Nob. Now, David at this point had actually uh, fled to a different part of Moab, another neighboring city, and he's dropping off his parents and his, his family in the witness protection program of like he's hiding them out in another part, of just a neighboring country, because uh, David's great-grandmother was Ruth, and... Ruth, uh, you, they're thinking maybe he'll find, they'll find favor, you know, in this, in this other country. After dropping them off, he finds out, oh, there's, th some of our people are being attacked, and he consults God and says, do you want me to go, shall I go and attack the Philistines? That's uh, chapter 23, verse 2. God says yes, so they go. In verse 5, David and his men went to Kaliah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kaliah. But doing this, obeying God like this, actually brings him really close to Saul. So Saul, who's trying to kill him, is now nearby. David's making a lot of noise by killing Philistines. 
And David consults God again and says, will Saul come after me? And God says, yes. Will the people of Kaliah rat me out to Saul? They don't say rat in the Hebrew <laughs> version. Um, I thought that was funny. I didn't mean to say it, but uh, will, will, will they hand me over to Saul? And God says, yes. And David flees to the wilderness of Ziph, again to the wilderness of Moan. He's all over the place. And he eventually ends up in, in Gedi. So this unfolds like a suspense novel, like a cat and mouse you know, scenario. And we're going to slow down a little bit at chapter 24. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. So you got 3,000 of Saul's Navy SEALs against 600 losers, all right? Verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, there, uh, there was a, a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, so David with 600 men are hiding in a cave. That's a big cave. And I happened just to learn this on Thursday at the zoo, but Texas has more unexplored caves than any other state in the country. You can go home now. All right. But this has got to be a big cave. They're in a, you know, how many of you been in a cave where they turned off the, the lights? It's like infinitely dark in there. So they're back there hiding in the dark, but they see in the light of the entrance who of all people. Saul comes in, uh, to the literal Hebrew is he goes in, he goes back to the cave to cover his feet. You know what that means? Like, when do you cover your feet, men? <laughs> when you drop your pants, right? It's interesting, you know? So he's covering his feet back there. So you can imagine, of all the caves we can be hiding in, 600 of us are back here, and the guy who's seeking our lives is coming back. What is more of a defenseless, defenseless position to be using the bathroom with your back to an army? So this is like God saying on a silver platter, here you go, David. Here's your chance to be out of the wilderness. And uh, look, at, look at how David responds. Chapter, uh, verse 4, the end of it says, Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of, so of Saul's robe. The only way David could re res responded like that is if he feared God more than he feared the 600 men that he was taking care of. Do you re realize how mad his own men would have been? That's all you did is just cut off his robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. He felt guilty because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David showed immense respect to a very unrespectable man. He basically continues and he has a conversation from a distance with Saul saying, why are you pursuing me? I had the opportunity to harm you, but I didn't. Here, look at your robe. I've got the rest of your robe. And and David is trusting in God's, God's timing, confronting Saul respectably. And at the end of that chapter, it seems like, you know, there's a little temporary truce. Now, I'm skipping over chapter 25 because next week uh, Nathan's going to talk about that. But look at chapter 26. At this point, David is now hiding from Saul on the hill of Hecali. 
Uh, the Ziphites tell Saul where David is hiding, and this leads to a repeat of the events of chapter 4. Slightly different details, but basically David stumbles on Saul and his whole army of 3,000 people, and it says they're asleep on this hill. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to sneak up on someone when they're asleep. I've got three kids, and if I go into their bedroom when they're asleep, and if I step on the wrong you know, floorboard, they wake up, it seems like. So there's something supernatural going on because David sneaks into the camp of Saul and his 3,000 men. Nobody wakes up, and they're standing there. David and, and his, his uh, I can't remember who is next to him, but it, the, the guy with him says, the Lord's given us into his hands. Let me pin him to the ground with the spear. And David says, no. Instead, he takes the, Saul's water jug and his spear, and they go to a neighboring hill. And from there, David begins to taunt Saul's bodyguard. He says, what are you, you're not doing your job. I've got Saul's spear and his water jug. And Saul again says, is that my servant David? And from a distance, David says, why are you pursuing me? I'm treating your life as precious. I'm not going to harm you. In verse 25, Chapter, 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 25, Saul con this concludes by Saul saying, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. So if I were David, I'd be encouraged by that interaction. But look at chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Does it sound familiar? Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. All of this running, at this point, it's probably been eight and a half years. All of this running is taking a toll on David. He is discouraged, he's in despair, and he's not thinking rationally. Because last time he had to act like a lunatic in order to escape. And now he's thinking, I'm going to go back into the heart of the Philistine territory, hide from Saul. And even though Saul has said, you know, blessed are you, my son. Um, and David spends the next 16 months reduced to being an errand boy for the Philistine king. He's the king of Israel, and he's running errands, basically, and, and doing raids on neighboring countries for the Philistine king. And that's where we end. So like, no, that's not the end of David's story. We know it's going to continue, but at this point, if we hit the pause button, what are we learning? God has David in the wilderness again. Like, that's, that's a lot of territory to be covering, and I left out a lot of details. I mean, there's other places he went. So, I mean, I don't know if... How many people have experienced homelessness or being on the run, uh, being unable to know like where your next meal is coming from? And this is what he's been doing. And he is kind of spiraling at the end of this section. But God is doing something good. He, he's being intentional, uh, I believe. D here's some things that we learn first. One, David, we learn in these chapters, he's not a superhero. Like, from the Sunday school stuff, if you grew up hearing stories about David, it's easy to think that this guy's a superhero. But we see in these chapters that David is a regular guy who made a lot of foolish decisions. He made a lot of impulsive decisions. He was, there were times where he was more driven by anger or by fear than he was by faith. He's prone to self-pity and depression. So he's a regular guy. Saul, on the other hand, he's not a supervillain. He's not some, like... Um, 
he wasn't born bad. He wasn't born evil. He was he he didn't start off as a jealous, self-absorbed narcissist who killed 85 priests and tried to kill his own son or tried to kill David. He was a guy, both of them were regular guys who were thrust into greatness. Both Saul and David were regular men who were thrust into greatness. They both, I believe, had the ingredients to turn out like Saul. But the difference between David and Saul is that David knew and trusted God. He sincerely knew God very imperfectly. He trusted God, and bless you, but sometimes he forgot God and he would return eventually. So he's very imperfect faith, but it was sincere. A couple weeks ago, Micah spoke and he talked about what trusting, in, trusting God involves. And it involves three things. It involves remembering who God is, remembering God's faithfulness, and then moving forward according to that knowledge. And David would forget about God, but then remember God. And he would remember God's faithfulness. And you see this kind of ebb and flow very imperfectly, but he would eventually move forward based on who God is. And um, I think what's important, though, what we can't see is what God saw in David. These chapters show us that God knew this about David, that David was not yet ready for the throne. If it weren't for these trials, David would have likely have become the same king as Saul. He would have been self-sufficient, proud, entitled. And God blocked him from the throne to make him become the type of person who was ready for the throne. So here's the big idea. It's true for us. It's true for David. God uses trials in life to make you, not to break you. That's always God's agenda. God uses trials in life to make you, not to break you. So the obstacles that blocked David from glory were God's way of preparing him for glory. He withholds greatness to make us great. So, so what are your trials right now? Like, where are you going backwards where you feel like you should be going forwards? Where, where are you uh, discouraged or frustrated, just suffering? There's a good God with a good agenda in it. It's a difficult road you're on, but you're not just on your own. He, there's a good God who wants to make you into somebody uh, ready for what he has for you. It's true in David's life. It's true in all of our lives. But here's the thing that's really important is that trials, while they're universal, we all suffer, trials don't automatically make us great. Suffering doesn't automatically grow us. Th there are certain things that we need to do to imitate uh, in David. We see David do some things that actually make these trials that turn, work for good in his life. So this is where I just want to apply it. How do we, how, what do we do with this? Well, when we're suffering, we need to allow trials to expose our weakness. Trials will always expose your weakness. Specifically, trials will expose a lack of faith. Um, in David's life, when he got the priests killed, you know, he, he maybe made a foolish decision, and then he finds out these priests were killed. That was never his intent, obviously. But look how he responds in chapter 22, verse 22. He says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. In other words, this was all my fault. David just owns his 
poor judgment. He owns the consequences from it. David's fearful impulsiveness is exposed when he flees to the enemies for protection. He does that twice. David's conscience is struck when he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And we see it in just a bunch of places. David is the type of person who owns what he discovers about himself when he's suffering. He, he doesn't blame it on circumstances or point the finger to other people the same way Saul often did. Um, and what God was doing is he was personally training David by having all of his weaknesses exposed. When I'm suffering, the question I most naturally want to ask is how can I get out of this, right? I want this to end. But what we need to be asking is what can I get out of this? I think that's what David was doing. What can I get out of this? What, what can I learn that I need to know because I am I'm on the anvil being pounded. I'm in the oven and it's getting hot in here. And there are things that are being revealed. And David's way of handling these things is he's totally honest with the stuff that he discovers. Um, Psalm 32, verse 2, this is, he's looking back after having been forgiven for some even bigger mistakes. He says, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. He's rejoicing about the fact that he's been forgiven for some pretty bad stuff. And his conclusion is, he says, as blessed is the man who's forgiven and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, blessed is the man who doesn't have to lie to himself about who he is or about the weaknesses he discovers. Like, I naturally want to blame circumstances or I was, you know, I was just really tired or it was really, it was her fault, it was his fault. But blessed is the man who doesn't have to explain those things away. Um, you know, uh, I said a minute ago that it's usually a lack of faith that is exposed in trials. You can always connect the things, the ugly things that are being exposed to a lack of faith. So, for example, you won't know how much you trust in approval of other people until you find yourself having to make decisions that are going to cause people to not be happy with you, until you have to risk losing approval. You won't know how much you trust in money until you start to experience being tight on money and ha having a hard time making ends meet. You won't know how much you trust in success until you fail at something. You get the idea. Um, I mean, it wasn't too long ago I went through a season where I, I can say this. I trust that Christ is my righteousness. That he's the one, like that, I'm righteous in Christ and that's where I get my identity. I can say that. But the truth is, I'm unaware of how much I care what my boss thinks, what certain people think, especially my wife. I care a lot with what my, what my wife thinks. I went through a season fairly recently where it just felt like Brandy was just annoyed with me. Like, like I, I felt like she resented me, and, and I wasn't even sure why, and I resented her for resenting me. <laughs> I would, and I'm the type of kind of like, I'll try to jump a little higher for her. Can I please you? you know? And it just wasn't working. She was upset, and I wasn't, uh, wasn't quite sure how to fix it. And, it. and during that season, I came to realize it was being exposed how, much, how insecure I am, like how much I need her approval. And, and, and I started to, you know, I was initially mad at her. The truth is, it's like, no, this is God. God's using this to reveal something in me. And I really can't get off this by pleasing her. I need to start pleasing God. I need to get my eyes on him. Just like, okay, God, what are your marching orders? I, did, I wasn't called to love a woman who respects me. I was called to love for better or for worse. By the way, that's normal in every marriage. It's like, I hope I'm not making Brandy sound bad. It's just, that's the kind of stuff God is revealing a lack of what it is that we're actually trusting in. And then when we discover those weaknesses, 
<clears throat> we need to own it, but also we need to draw close to God in those times when he feels far away. That's something D- David does beautifully. We see it happening in the passage. Like he, He's asking God, should I go and attack the, attack the Philistines? He's, he's constantly consulting God. But I really want to look at a companion book uh, as if we didn't have enough chapters to cover. I'm going to look at more chapters. Um, the book of Psalms. We get to read David's private journal during these times in the wilderness. So what happens is, and I just took a sample of a few. These Psalms up here, um, you can read the title after it says Psalm 56, and it says, when David was hiding in the cave, you know, and, and so you see it corresponding to, to different moments. We see David's, uh, uh, when David when he fled to Gath, David when he's hiding in the cave, his anger about Doag killing the priests. In some of these Psalms, just, there's a rawness to it, like, you know, I can't remember, like, you know, when he's afraid, he calls out to God like a fearful child. Um, David is um, constantly drawing closer to God in moments that we wouldn't naturally think of drawing closer to him, like these non-worshipful moments. I, I grabbed one from Psalm 51 that doesn't correspond with what we looked at today, but that's after he committed adultery and killed Bathsheba's husband. We get to listen in on his confession in Psalm 51, and it's just raw and honest. So I'm grabbing from Psalm 22. I just put up t- two verses up here to learn how do you draw near to God when he feels far away. So he says here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. So what do we learn here? We learn that, one, the way David prays, I cannot turn the page here successfully, um, the way David prays is he calls out to God when he feels distant. He, for, really, you see, he, he removes the filter and is not afraid to be raw when his emotions are toxic. He comes to God, he removes the filter, and he ta- calls out to God when he seems distant. Secondly, he speaks directly to God, not in the abstract. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, I beseech thee, hear your servant pray. You know, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he talks directly to God when he seems far away, and he's not afraid to be recklessly bold. Meaning, to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's almost a, an accusation when God hasn't actually forsaken him, but he feels forsaken. Psalm 13, he says, how long will you keep forgetting me, Lord? God could have said, sit down, David. I don't forget anything. He, he could have said that, but he doesn't. God's the perfect listener. He doesn't correct you when you're wrong. It's the fact that David is calling out to him, even when he's wrong, being recklessly bold with his strong feelings. We don't take our strong feelings to God very often. He's the best listener. He's the best counselor, and he actually can handle us even when we're wrong. And Last, he's, he's, he doesn't force himself to be positive. And I actually grabbed this from Psalm 88. It was written by a guy named Heman. And he is depressed. It's clear. Because that psalm ends without any silver lining. He, he, the last verse of Psalm 88 says, darkness is my closest friend. The end. I mean, when you're depressed, the fact that a guy like Heman is actually still calling out to God. But he doesn't, he doesn't force himself to be happy. I, these aren't emotions I associate with going to God. I associate 
my my like worship or confession is like that's when I go to God or in Bible study I'm learning something but when I'm feeling self-pity when I'm angry I'm discouraged you I've prayed like this you, you heard what that woman said to me I'm talking about my wife you know like I, instead of saying that to Brandy she she's not ready for that I'm, I'm not ready to process that with her. I need to process it with God. We move close to him when he feels far away. I, I hope you get the message. This is something that David does that I don't naturally do. I, I would propose that most of us don't naturally do this. So we allow this suffering to expose the weakness, and then we wrestle with God even when he feels far away. My standard is to, to isolate and go silent, frankly. And then I throw up on other people with my emotions. Last thing he does here. There's more, but this is the last thing I'm going to point out. Wait for God to lead you out of the desert. And this is made abundantly clear with his two opportunities to take out Saul. I mean, it would be like winning the lottery to have Saul come and put his back to you in a cave. Right? But he knows that he is not supposed to do that. He's being tested and being proven to trust in God in that moment. Because I believe that if David would have taken that as a sign, oh, I get to kill Saul, I get to bend this rule and lay my hand on the Lord's anointed, he would have turned out to be just like Saul. He would have become the guy who takes matters into his own hands. But in order to do that, you need to know there is a good God with a loving agenda in this suffering. I mean, maybe you're single longer than you planned planned to be single. It'd be so easy to compromise your standards in those moments. It'd be so easy to cut corners to get that test grade so you can make sure you can get there. But it's like, no, I'm not going to. It's between you and me, God, and you have me here for a reason. I'm going to trust in you. You can't do that if you don't believe he's actually working a good agenda in your situation. James 1, 2, and Two through four says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, like faithfulness, character, it has to have its full effects that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you want to meet a shallow person, meet a person who's never suffered, never had setbacks, right? No, but it's the type of people, you can also meet some really bitter, jaded narcissists who've suffered a lot and they've become the constant victim it's there's a good god who's put me through something that is exposing me and it's causing me to to die to the things i used to trust in him trust in but here we need to remember don't abandon him because he has not abandoned you he has an agenda in the suffering and and i think it's seen clearly here Romans 8, 28, and 29. If you've heard Romans 8, 28, it's a popular passage for those uh, whom, uh, and we know that all those who love God, all for, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, I'm getting this mixed up, different version. And we know that for those who love God, all, God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things means especially the bad things. We know that good things work together for good, right? But it's when something bad happens that we need to hear, all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? It's verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is using those setbacks to make you more like Jesus. He wants you 
to trust and love God and trust in him more than anything else, just like Jesus. And here's the thing. We know he's being good to us. We can trust that because of Jesus. I believe we have more reason to trust that God is doing something good when we're suffering than David had. We have more reason to trust God than David did because we can see that Jesus came and he's the only person who, didn't, who never deserved to be forsaken. Like when I'm suffering, I wondered, God, did you forsake me? Did I cross a line? Did I do something? Have I been unfaithful to you and now you're done with me? And the truth is, he will never forsake us because he forsook his son. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the only time that that was actually true, that God actually forsook his son so that he could say to us, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter what you're going through. And it's believing that, resting in that, wrestling with him in that. As you're discovering stuff about yourself, you're becoming great if you stay in that lane, if you trust in him and keep your eyes on him. So let me pray that that's applied to our hearts. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you've given us a promise that are not just mere words, but you proved that promise when you sent your son to die in our place, to be forsaken in our place. And that we can see that you will never leave us nor forsake us. But help us, Lord, to trust in you, to rest in you, to wrestle with you, to call out to you, whatever it is that we're going through. Help us to move closer to you rather than farther away from you. Help us to allow you to make us, not to break us when we're struggling. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.